by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. That is Jesus Christ uh, who says, do not count their sin against them for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, joining us is our trusty vicar, Albert Bader, fresh back from vacation. Vicar, welcome back. How are you doing? Very good. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yes, well, you ought to be happy to be here. We're paying you. No, I'm just joking <laughs> here. Um, it's been uh, it's been a great year so far. Vicar's over halfway through his uh, vicarage assignment. He's shaking his head here. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's just like a little slice of paradise right here at Good Shepherd in Lincoln, and uh, you won't realize that until you're gone. Well, maybe <laughs> you will. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making that up. Today we're looking at the readings for Quinquagesima. That may sound like a mouthful. That may sound uh, crazy and unapproachable, but it's just a fancy Latin way of saying about 50 days before Easter. And these uh, Jesima Sundays, this pre-Lent season, is helping us ease into our Lenten journey, ease into our Lenten walk. We've got the uh, solas that are brought out very, very clearly during this time. And in this Quinquagesima Sunday, we have a wonderful, wonderful introit. Kind of sums up so much of the faith. One of my all-time favorites, selected portions from Psalm 31. Vicar, you want to take it away? Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you led me and guide me. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. You know, there are many different ways to approach this introit, and uh, we will uh, see if we can't find one or the best way to do it. Um, Pastor, we have a situation, a problem, a dilemma. Listen to these words. What is going on here? I need you to be a refuge. I need you to be a fortress. I need you to save me. I need you to lead me, to guide me. Again, be a fortress. Don't let me be put to shame. Deliver me. I am in distress. I'm crying my eyes out. Save me. Pastor, what is happening here? 
And uh, why is the psalmist crying out in this predicament? What's happening? Well, there are all sorts of things happening that uh, all of us face in our day-to-day lives as well. Uh, Sickness, weakness, hunger, poverty, um, death, uh, all the struggles that uh, go on in this life. And all of them have their uh, common root uh, found in the fact that we are sinful people living in a sinful world. And so all those challenges that arise are stemming out of that sin and uh, the guilt and the shame that we bear because we have gone against God's word and the uh, curse that's gone against creation because of our uh, turning our back upon God. And so sin is exactly the thing that's happening, and that's where we want to find our refuge and our strength, our fortress, our peace, our comfort in God who overcomes sin, death, and the power of the devil through Jesus Christ so we might have peace in this world. You uh, you pastors all sound alike. Yep. And whenever there's an issue, whenever there's a problem, um, some people would say, that pastors take the easy way out. You have uh, a bad diagnosis from the doctor. A friend or a loved one dies. You can't get your pickup started. Your dog runs away. Uh, You have uh, halitosis. That was a biggie back in the 70s. You even know what that is? That's the fancy name for bad breath. Uh, toenail fungus. You've got, you can't pay your bills. Your kids are on drugs. Uh, you know, um, all these problems and you go to the church and you go to the pastor and I got to be honest, pastor, uh, playing the devil's advocate. It kind of sounds a little bit like it's a cop out that we always come back and say, well, you know, it's because of sin in the world that people get sick, because of people die, because of tornadoes and floods. Uh, how would you respond to the person who doesn't want to hear what you're saying or what the church is saying because it sounds like a cop-out? Yeah, I've heard that as well. The The challenge is, is that as a pastor, and this is why all pastors sound the same, I guess, in this regard, we're saying what the scriptures clearly say, that all all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one innocent, no, not even one, uh, and that the wages of sin is death, uh, and that death is the cause of illness, old age, all these things. You know, the reason that uh, our hair starts to turn gray is because our body is dying. The reason that uh, we get wrinkly is because our body is dying. The reason that uh, people uh, love their money more than their neighbor is because uh, they're sinful people who are dying uh, and they're worried about how they're going to take care of themselves. Uh, Behind all of these things is sin and denying uh, what's going on does not um, or denying the reality of our world does not mean it's untrue. Uh, Just because you say I'm not a sinner doesn't mean that's the truth any more than me saying you know there's no such thing as gravity or the world is flat or uh, astronauts never landed on the moon. Just saying those things does doesn't mean they're true. Uh, What God's Word says is very clear in all these cases that uh, sin is real, that it affects our lives by tearing them apart and making them difficult and eventually leading even to death. Denial of a thing doesn't make a thing 
untrue. That kind of sounds like uh, language from Luther's small or Luther's large catechism as well. Uh, section on baptism is what comes to my mind. But that is absolutely true. That is absolutely profound. Just because you deny something is true does not make your understanding or that thing that you are denying untrue. I mean, uh, our thoughts don't change reality. It seems to me, Vicar, that that we are having a uh, failure to communicate. We're not connecting the dots. Um, God's word says one thing. My feelings, my emotions, my my logic, uh, my friends, the message from the world, whatever, are telling me something else. What is going on when we're just failing to make this connection, failing to connect the dots with regard to what God's word and what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking? Yeah. Well, that has everything to do with us being poor, miserable sinners, that we sometimes, even though the facts are laid right before our face, we can't see the problem. We want to when things are going against us in this world, we want to look outside of ourselves and say, well, what is causing this to happen to me? And you point to others or your government or your mean boss or your mean parents or whatever. But instead, we have to turn on ourselves and look into our heart and see that we are sinners. And therefore, because we are sinners, bad things happen as we live in this sinful fallen world. I thought it was interesting uh, you brought up, you know, a cop-out to say that, uh, well, this is because of sin in the world and stuff like that. Well, if somebody who doesn't want to confess their sin, doesn't want to repent of that sin and receive the only true gift that really is a gift that leads to eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, well, maybe they say it's a cop-out because they want to come to you to help. They can't pay their bills, Pastor. Isn't the church supposed to be there to be a social welfare service to hand cash out to those who can't provide? That would be true help right the forgiveness of sins is that really help for this situation that i'm in yeah we have uh we we have a misunderstanding and a misconception by many people what the church is for and when someone comes in like you mentioned and and we have this on a fairly regular basis here at good shepherd and it's it's very very difficult to discern someone who's playing the system and someone who has a real need it really is difficult very difficult thing for a pastor pastor you're you're yeah, you're I, going epoplectic over there well that's yeah that's a little bit of an exaggeration i think <laughs> but uh I, the words vicar just said uh mirror what uh, john writes in his first epistle if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. And I think maybe that underlines all the things we've been trying to talk about and explain here so far. And, and that's very uh, very common to most Lutherans because it's the uh, opening um, in uh, those passages from First uh, John chapter 1, uh, the opening part of confession and absolution in our divine service, divine service 1 and divine service 2. So we're familiar with that. Um, but people look to the church as a social welfare place. People look to the church as a humanitarian thing throughout the world, the uh, ultimate haven for social justice warriors. And we have to be honest, many times in the church we have created that situation because we have failed to speak God's word clearly. And the reason why we exist is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins 
earned and won by the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. And when we fail to remember that that's why the, re, the church exists, then we will stop talking about sin. Because there's no need to talk about sin because forgiveness is not driving uh, the machine. Pastor, uh, in our time that we have left, uh, this portion of Psalm 31 is familiar to many people because Jesus quotes it. And he quotes it on Good Friday. He quotes it as he hangs naked, suspended between heaven and earth, um, bleeding and dying for the life of the world. Into your hand I commit my spirit. What is Jesus teaching us here by quoting Psalm 31 that is uh, crucial to the life of a Christian? Uh, he's teaching us, uh, and maybe this sounds cliche, but uh, that as Christians we ought to put everything into God's hand. In fact, that it already is in God's hand, and maybe that we ought to just realize that. Uh, we, uh, uh, I don't know uh, if all churches do this in North Dakota during the season of Lent for our weekly prayers. During Lent we always prayed the, um, the, uh, the litany where we are continually saying all these things are really in your hand, God, uh, and that you're in charge of them and that you take care of them and that uh, without your help and care and comfort, uh, none of these things could be accomplished. And really, as we say in the litany over and over again, we are at your mercy, God. And that's a good place to be is at God's mercy because that's the very thing he desires to show to us and to pour out upon us. He wants to take care of us. He's promised to. And so when we're in his mercy, we're in a very good place. It takes great faith in the midst of our problems, our trouble, our distress, the situations where we cry our eyes out to the point where we wear out our entire bodies. It takes great faith to cling to the promises of God in those difficult situations. The uh, theme for this Sunday, quinquagesima, is faith. We pray that God would bless us to that end. We need to take a break. Don't go away. to cut into that hymn. This is Proclaiming the One. Thanks for sticking with us during the break. Our theme for this quinquagesima is faith. Faith alone. Faith that clings to the promises of God in good times and in bad. The uh, way that Pastor Pastor Kuhlman often describes it is the uh, life of a Christian is spelled F-A-I-T-H. 
And that's exactly what we see here. We just looked at our introit portions, selected verses from Psalm 31. And folks, I would just encourage you to make Psalm 31 your friend. It is a great, great psalm and uh, one that will um, give you great comfort in the middle of your difficulties and distresses. Now we want to look at our gospel reading, Luke 18, 31 to 43. Vicar, would you like to read those words, please? Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, it will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, Gave praise to God. Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. That seems a little odd that Jesus would talk that way because faith is a gift. And here he's extolling the gift and almost as if the gentleman should get credit for the healing and it was because he had such great faith that Jesus decided to do a miracle. We know that's not right. We know that's contrary to Scripture. And if we take close and careful attention with regard to the rest of the text, if we look at the context of what's going on here, this becomes crystal clear. Pastor, you want to interject now, or you want to wait until I pepper you with unanswerable questions? <laughs> well, maybe this uh, is something we consider as we tackle all those unanswerable questions, is that the word faith here is not a verb, but rather it is a noun. And so it can be a gift that is given to us by God, and yet still be the thing where our um, salvation is found. It's not what we do, it's what God gives to us that saves us. Okay, that's uh, that's good, and that ties in very well with where we need to go with this particular te- section. Uh, taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Uh, we, are, we are getting toward the end of the Gospel of Luke here in this particular text, Luke 18, toward the end of Luke 18, and Set the stage for us, Pastor, uh, what's been going on and what is going on here by the time we get to the end of chapter 18. 
Well, here by, in Luke's Gospel, by this point, uh, Jesus has done the bulk of his teaching and healing and ministry. Uh, they are headed to Jerusalem, just as he says, uh, for the very uh, Passover uh, arrest um, and um, crucifixion of Jesus. Um, they are headed towards Jericho first, where they're going to see Zacchaeus. Uh, Jericho is a city that is to the east of Jerusalem. It's down in the Jordan River Valley, uh, not very far from the Jordan River, in fact. Uh, it is the city of Palms because at that time it would have been the entire Jordan River Valley covered with um, date palm trees, which in fact are extinct except for one uh, that's left in our world today that is actually uh, unreproducible, in fact, because it's the only one left. They found seeds from 2,000 years ago and sprouted it about 10, 15 years ago. Um, they're headed up to Jerusalem. Whenever you go to Jerusalem, you're headed up because it's the place where the temple is. And uh, he tells them very clearly what things are going to happen to him when he arrives there. So. Yeah, when when uh, he's going up to Jerusalem, this shouldn't be a shocker because at the end of chapter 9 in Luke's Gospel, many times uh, scholars or commentators or whatever will draw a line right at the end of chapter 9. And everything from the end of chapter 9 to the end of Luke uh, has a pinnacle, a goal, uh, a spot, because Jesus, at the end of Luke chapter 9, God's Word says, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew where he was going. He knew why he was going. He kept giving uh, not only clues and glimpses of his mission, but he spoke plainly about this. On numerous occasions, he would tell people, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem and exactly what's going to happen there. And he does that again one more time here in Luke 18. Very clear, no less. He says, Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. Vicar, do you get any more concise prediction of the passion, suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus than these words right here? When we go through life in this world, we never know when our end is. We like to think that we'll die sometime way, way in the future at 100 years old, sleeping in our bed, but truth be told, we could die of a car accident tomorrow. We don't know. And yet Jesus, true God, true man, knew exactly what he was sent here on this earth to do. He was going to Jerusalem to die in this exact way, to be handed over to the Gentiles, that is the Romans, to be mocked and shamefully treated. First, Pilate will have him flogged, and then when flogging isn't good enough and the cries of the people are to crucify him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him, and yet he didn't run away from it. He went boldly for you and for me to accomplish for us salvation. Pastor. I think it's important, too, to see here the words that he says, everything that has been written uh, from the prophets and all that, and that's talking about the Old Testament. Everything that the Old Testament is taught is going to be accomplished, and the word there in the Greek is the same word that Jesus speaks when he dies in Matthew's Gospel, to die. And so uh, it has been accomplished and will continue to be accomplished. It's in a different tense here, but uh, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is not 
recounted saying that word from the cross, and it's perhaps because he's already told him that here in this part of Luke's gospel, it'll all be accomplished. So everything the scripture says is going to be accomplished when I die on the cross. That's what Christ is saying. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in these Jesima Sundays is in the first Jesima Sunday, there is an epistle reading that extols the word of God. In the second Jesima Sunday, the gospel reading, all the readings, extol the word of God. And now on the third Jesima Sunday, you have this one line that oftentimes goes unnoticed. And I'm glad you go, you went there because that's exactly the question that I was going to ask you next. Everything that is written about the Son of Man, you search the scriptures because in them you think you will have life. These are they that testify of me. Every jot and tittle of God's word. And here, uh, Jesus is talking specifically about the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, he's using the uh, the word, the prophets, as a, as a synecdoche, a part for a whole, to refer to all of the Old Testament scriptures. Everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to the person and work of the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah, so they point to him. And now everything is coming to fulfillment. And what is it that is coming to fulfillment? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are so many people that want to attack Christianity, so many people that want to attack Jesus, so many people that want to attack the very passion and Holy Week and Good Friday death and Easter resurrection of Jesus. They say it was an accident. They say Jesus had no idea what was going on, maybe even to the point of being mentally ill. He had a Messiah complex. He died an unjust death because he was a nice man and a good teacher, but he was a nice man and a good teacher and nothing more, not God in the flesh. And these kind of things that are written in Scripture, well, obviously they were added later on by people who were blinded in their devotion for this cult leader, Jesus. He didn't actually die and rise from the dead. All these things were added into the testimony to, to kind of puff up Jesus and Jesus' attitude. Pastor, how would you respond to those kind of attacks on the really heart, core, and soul of our faith? Well, uh, Jesus himself tells them multiple times in all the Gospels that this is the very thing that's going to happen to him. Uh, you mentioned earlier in, in Luke chapter 9, we have it in John's Gospel, when Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up. Uh, he says it to Nicodemus. He says it to others. Um, we have it in Matthew's Gospel when he tells the disciples where he's going. Jesus is preaching for the entirety of his ministry uh, that he has to go to the cross and suffer, bleed, and die, and rise again. And uh, if you want to say it's an accident, then you also have to deny all the rest of the scriptures as well. Or we can just take them at their face value for what they say and say Christ knew why he came, Christ knew he was going to die, and that's the very reason that he came. The uh, third article of the Apostles' Creed is really connected to this particular text. And I don't know if you've made that connection yet in your brain yet, Vicar, but this is a this is a really, really 
beautifully constructed text by the Holy Spirit through Luke. Jesus speaks plainly to the disciples. He gives them, I mean, like if you're, if you're trained in dialogue evangelism and you're going door to door and you're going to make a gospel presentation, it doesn't get any better than what Jesus does here for the disciples. And the disciples do not get it. Vicar, what does Luther teach us in the meaning to the third article of the Apostles' Creed? He says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. That's far there. enough. That's far enough. You got you got it down, and that's what I wanted. I know you know it all, but I cannot, you cannot, the disciples could not by their own reason or strength understand or believe the gospel. Why? Because faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. And isn't it ironic that the one person who understands that faith is a gift is the guy who can't see, the guy who's blind. We'll uh, look at the rest of our gospel lesson for Quinquagesima, Luke 18, 31 to 43, when we come back from our break. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. KNNA. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. I just hate to cut that hymn off in the middle. Uh, Check it out. Come and worship with us and uh, sing the great hymns of the church, the traditional liturgy. Uh, We are, um, in some respects, kind of a throwback congregation. We don't have big screens. We use a hymnal. We uh, don't have our pastors dress in a three-piece suit. Um, we We are your grandfather's church in that respect, and we make no apologies for it. We are uh, very, very thankful to uh, follow the uh, divine liturgy that has been handed down through the church to sing uh, both modern and um, uh, ancient hymns of the church, all that teach us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We, we worship on Sunday mornings, 830, 
or 8 o'clock and 10.30 with Sunday school for all ages in between. We are located at 3825 Wildbriar Lane, and uh, please join us. Uh, you can listen to us on the radio at uh, 95.7 The Cross. All of our worship services are live. And uh, this coming Wednesday starts our Lenten journey. And during our Lenten season, we will have two opportunities for worship on Wednesday, 4 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. with a fellowship meal starting at 5. Uh, please join us, and uh, we'd love to have you for our Lenten walk and our Lenten journey. The, uh, the overall theme for our Lenten Wednesday services is, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. And we know that that is Jesus who is wounded for our transgression. He is pierced for our iniquities. He rises from the dead to give us the great absolution. Thanks be to God. We're looking at the gospel reading for Quinquagesima, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, Luke 18, 31 to 43. We have a marvelous, marvelous prediction from Jesus' mouth about the reason why he is here. His death, his passion, his suffering, his resurrection. And the disciples understood none of these things. Luke eighteen thirty four. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Pastor, we ended the last segment when I had Vicar uh, recite a portion of Luther's explanation to the third article of the Creed. We have a beautiful text here that teaches us the disciples were given the direct gospel message, and yet they couldn't believe it. It was hidden from their eyes. They couldn't believe it. And now Jesus is going down to Jericho. You talked in our uh, last segment about the geography here, what was happening. Going down to Jericho and the absolute least person or last person that you would think would be able to see Jesus for who he is, the Savior, the Messiah, is a blind beggar. Uh, talk about the irony of this and how this particular text is uh, beautifully put together to illustrate that dramatic irony for us. Yeah, Christ doesn't get any more clear in the words that he's just spoken to his apostles who have heard his teaching for three years now, uh, who uh, Jesus has taken the time to show them what the scriptures say. We even had a couple weeks ago, we had the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John see clearly that Jesus is God. And in Luke's gospel, they're talking about Jesus' exodus, um, the fact that he is going to leave this world and that it, we know that's to happen in the cross, and they don't get it. But a man who hasn't been with Jesus all the time, uh, who's sitting on the side of the road in this particular town, hears that Jesus is going by, and uh, as a result of hearing that Jesus is going by, cries out over and over and over and over again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, crying out because he knows who Christ is. He has faith. Uh, he has faith that trusts who Jesus is and what Jesus does. 
And so he cries out over and over and over again. There's a huge distinction between the result of hearing the word for this blind man and the result of hearing the word for that disciples. So, Vicar, where did he get this faith? How did he get this faith? What was the date and moment of his conversion? What do we know about this man? We don't know a whole lot about him besides the fact that he's a blind beggar doing what blind beggars do, sitting on the side of the road begging, and all of a sudden he hears this loud commotion. There's a crowd coming in and a big celebration. What's going on? Somebody says, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And maybe he had heard before the great works of Jesus, and because of what he had heard prior to this, he knew this man will be able to save me. And so he cries out and cries out and cries out. And do we want to get into what Jesus does next, or should we leave that for just a little bit longer? Uh, we can we can hold off on that for just a little bit. I want to, uh, I want to piggyback on what you just said. Um, you know, it was uh, just earlier this month on the 18th of February, we remembered the death day of Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther died on the 18th of February. He was buried on the 19th of February. Justice Jonas was the uh, preacher at his funeral sermon, uh, service in Eisleben. And, um, Pastor, what do we know about the last words of Luther? Well, actually, it's recorded for us uh, quite clearly by uh, those witnesses of his death. Um, the... Uh, the whole thing for Martin Luther was, is he going to die in the faith that he's been promoting uh, throughout his career? And so they recorded all the things that took place. They asked him, do you believe this faith, uh, the, the Christian faith, that we're saved by grace through faith without any works or merits in ourselves? And Luther uh, repeated over and over again, yes, yes, I do. He suffered for a long time, and then he died. And in his pocket, they found a piece of paper on which the words were written, we are truly beggars. Um, or we are beggars, this is true, however you uh, translate your German there. And that's the very reality of who we are. And I think that's the beauty of praying the litany during the season of Lent is that we continually copy the words of this beggar uh, and of Martin Luther and of all Christians throughout all time saying, Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, Because that's the only hope that we have is God having mercy upon us. So the uh, blind beggar is a picture of each one of us. Yes. And that uh, slip of paper in Luther's pocket uh, is a beautiful reminder. No matter how high and mighty you think you are, we are all truly beggars, begging for a crumb or a morsel from the hand of God who is gracious and merciful to give it to us. Uh, And that's exactly what Jesus does here for the blind beggar. The disciples don't want anything to do with this guy. He's an embarrassment. He uh, he's loud. He's blind. He he he's a beggar. He's probably filthy. Um, They don't want anything to do with him. He he messes up their image. He uh, he doesn't fit their entourage. So they say, yeah, basically like W.C. Fields, go away, boy, you bother me. That kind of a thing. And Jesus says, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Pastor, what does he want? His answer is, Lord, 
let me recover my sight. And so he makes both a confession of faith and a request. This is who you are, and because that's who you are, uh, and you promise all sorts of great things, here's what I would like to have happen. Isn't it amazing and, again, ironic that the blind beggar already sees before God gives him sight in this miracle? He sees Jesus with the eyes of faith. I once was blind, but now I see. Was lost, but now I found, I'm found. Um, the, uh, the next line, Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. I thought Jesus made him well. But his faith has made him well. You mentioned something before about uh, faith being a noun instead of a verb and blah, blah, blah. Help, help our hearers understand what you meant by that. So often in our world today, we think of the word um, faith or believe uh, to be a noun, something that we have to do. I have to believe hard enough. I have to have enough faith. I have to do something uh, for God to be pleased and happy with me. But in this particular case, it is a noun. It is something that's in possession. Uh, the same way that uh, I possess an arm here, even though I didn't do anything to make it happen. Uh, I didn't ask for an arm. It's just something I have. It was given to me uh, at my birth or even in my mother's womb when I was growing there. Uh, and that's the case here. The man has faith, the noun, the thing given to him by God, and he's in possession of it, and he uses that thing he has possession of from God to ask God uh, for this care, for this healing, for this miracle, and that's what happens. Um, the other places where it is in the verb form, too, along the same line, and other places where the, the word faith or belief is the verb, it's usually in the passive tense, where uh, it is something being worked to you, uh, not something you are actively doing. And so I think that's a neat thing to keep in mind when we consider this particular text. Pastor, I don't want to catch you unawares here because uh, I've got a question based on everything you just said, and I, I thought that was beautifully stated and uh, in, a, in a very simple way that even my simple brain can grasp. Uh, does that help explain why some people struggle with infant baptism? with regard to seeing faith as an action we must do rather than faith as a gift given by God? Can we, can we uh, use that as a, uh, a teaching understanding for that? Definitely, um, because you've had the same arguments where uh, someone has said, a baby cannot believe as if they cannot do the verb, but a baby can have faith, in other words, possess the noun. Uh, if God's the one giving it and, and distributing it, God can give it to whoever he wishes to. And so a baby can have the noun faith, the thing faith, and therefore receive the gifts that uh, come with having that particular noun or, or possession faith. People witness this miracle, Vicar, and immediately the blind man recovers his sight followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Why did they give praise to God when Jesus was the one who did the miracle? Because Jesus is God. He is the one that did this miracle, and so they are giving him thanks and praise. He is yet again revealing himself to them who he truly is. 
He is the one who gives faith. He is the one who grants the blessings of faith that this man's sight was recovered. And for us today, uh, what do we receive through faith? We receive the forgiveness of sins and with that life everlasting. Amen, amen, amen. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for Quinquagesima. Come and join us for worship on Sunday and get prepared for our Ash Wednesday worship service on Wednesday, March 6th. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. I know my faith is founded on Jesus Christ, my God and Lord. What a great way to introduce and kind of sum up the uh, texts that are before us on Quinquagesima Sunday, the Sunday that is immediately preceding Ash Wednesday. Please join us for church on Sunday, 8 and 1030. You can listen online. You can listen on the air. Uh, You can come in person. Uh, the cross 957.org check out our archive sections and also previous sections of this program as well and also this coming wednesday ash wednesday march 6th we'll gather at 4 and 6 30 begin our lenten journey to the cross and empty tomb we have a fellowship meal at five come and join us and worship our king our savior the one whose sacred head is wounded for us. In our final segment here today, we want to take a look at our Old Testament reading. It's a long narrative, but I think it just ties in so beautifully with everything that we've talked about in our gospel reading and our introit for today. 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13. You might remember this from your Sunday school days. Vicar? The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to go to Ramah. What a what a marvelous text! What a marvelous narrative! You might remember this from your Sunday school days, and uh, you have all the sons of Jesse being paraded out in front of Samuel the prophet, and uh, Jesse their dad. And nope, not this one. Nope, not this one. We're not exactly sure how the Lord communicated to Samuel, but he did. We know that clearly. Uh, whether it was a voice, whether it was uh, intuition, we, you know, we don't know. But uh, that was made clear. I want to go back to the very beginning here. Uh, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? This part, this verse from First uh, Samuel 16 seems to be forgotten in the parade of the boys and the anointing of David. Pastor, what happened? Why was Saul rejected by God? Why was Samuel pouting over the fact that Saul was rejected by God? I thought the people wanted a king. The people picked out Saul. Saul was the one who was the mighty warrior, who was handsome, who was rugged, who had the six-pack abs, who had uh, you know the, the Spartan uh, warrior qualities, and he was going to be the king of kings and lord of lords because this was the one that they had handpicked. What happened? Well, it happened just a, a chapter before this in the book of First Samuel, uh, when uh, the people of Israel are going out to fight against the Amalekites, and they're on a mission to destroy the Amalekites. Um, that was <laughs> their, the, what God told them in His Word very clearly: uh, Go and strike the Amalekites and devote all they have to destruction. Do not spare them. Kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. And Saul goes out with. Uh, his army, and he fights against them, uh, but he he defeats them. But he took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive, uh, even though he devoted all the rest of them to destruction. He also spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good. He would not utterly destroy them. In so other words, Saul didn't listen to God's word. Saul did what he thought was best. Saul made up his own rules and opinions and thoughts. And for that reason, God says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he doesn't listen to my word. So Saul is rejected 
by God because he doesn't listen to God. He doesn't do what God says. He certainly does not fear, love, and trust in God above all things because he thinks he has better words than the Lord. Why is Samuel pouting about this? Uh, He's down in the dumps, clearly. And um, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? What's happening here? Well, Samuel has kind of a tough go of it his entire life uh, as a judge. Uh, he's he's a judge in Israel when the people come to him and say, we don't want a judge anymore. We want a king because everybody else has a king. And, and Samuel says, you know, uh, this is what a king does. It's not good. They, they force you to work for them. They uh, make you fight for them. They uh, make you plow his ground to reap his harvest, and you're not free anymore. They conscript your sons yes. into battle, you know, those he, kind of things. He warns them about it, and they still say, we want a king. We don't want a judge anymore. And God tells Samuel, it's not uh, you they're rejecting, but rather it's me that they're rejecting. They don't want me, God, to be their king. They want a man to be king. So what Samuel do? Uh, he goes and he finds Saul and he appoints Saul to be the king. And uh, Saul turns his back, as we just heard uh, on God's word, and is then rejected. So then Samuel has to find another person. And so it's uh, failure after failure after failure from Samuel's point of view uh, in the things that he's supposed to be doing, all the things that he um, brings about fall and fail, including his own sons uh, who are also wicked and evil. And so it's hard for Samuel to separate those things. Hopni and Phineas? Yes, yes, I think that sounds right. Yeah, Hopni and Phineas, and they're some pretty bad boys. Yes. So for Samuel, he's looking at everything with his eyes saying, everything I touch fails. And everything I do goes wrong. And uh, he's really struggling with that. He's struggling with his uh, vocation. And so God says, uh, you know, go down to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city come out to meet him. And uh, they don't give him a very warm reception, do they? They're shaking in their boots. They're trembling. Do you come peaceably? What are they expecting Samuel to do or say? What are they so worried about? Well, um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. They are um, afraid because of all the challenges and difficulties that are coming about, and this guy who's supposed to speak for the Lord is coming. They're afraid they might speak judgment, that there'll be some challenge, or, or, you know, they don't really know what to expect, but they know Samuel's the guy who speaks for God. Primarily, the words out of the prophet's mouth are word of, words of law. Right. They, around, they end up getting to you to Jesus, but they are words of law. So then we have the famous scene where we have uh, Jesse and all the boys, and not this one, not this one, not this one, and finally, any more boys? Uh, yeah, well, you know, the youngest one, he's out taking care of the sheep. Uh, he's insignificant. And the Lord say, or Samuel says, go get him. And the Lord tells Samuel, this is the one. Anoint him, the little boy, as king. The little shepherd boy, as king. In our gospel reading today from Luke chapter 18, Pastor, we made a connection, kind of a chiasm, if you would want to, between the disciples who thought they could see but really were blind and the blind man who thought he was blind but he really could see because he had the eyes of faith. How is that connected to Jesse, the boys, Samuel himself, 
thinking they could see, but really being blinded to the word and will of God. Yeah, they they weren't seeing things the way that God sees things. God always sees things differently. He sees the reality, whereas we see the appearance. And those two things do not always match. Um, and so they're seeing these big, strong boys who should be just fine to be king. But really, that's no different than looking at King Saul himself, who was a big, strong boy. What God is looking at is the faith that's there, the uh, the noun that the people are possessing. And David has faith given to him by God, and God sees that faith within him. In, in a way, too, it reflects what happens earlier in the Old Testament with uh, Joseph and his brothers as well, where God's giving faith to Joseph and the others look and don't see it, and they're even angry and mistreat him because of it. Same sort of thing happens all the time. God looks not at the outer appearance, but rather at the inner appearance of faith, uh, and that's kind of what's happening here. And we see that later on, too, when uh, David's brothers are fighting in battle, and uh, little shepherd boy David comes and brings them a lunch, and he's looked down upon and whatever, and then uh, that big old Philistine by the name of Goliath comes out, and David says, why are you letting this pagan mock the name of the Lord? And then it's like, well, if you think you can do something about it, David, go ahead. And then we see the mighty arm of God that works through even the faith of a little boy. Our eyes often deceive us. Our ears often deceive us. Our feelings and emotions often deceive us. What can we cling to? We can cling to the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, the Bible, which teaches us that we are sinners and that God loves sinners by sending his son Jesus to bleed and die and rise again from the dead. Forgiveness full and free is yours by grace through faith. Faith. Faith alone. That's the theme for our Quinquagesima Sunday. Vicar, would you like to wrap things up by praying the collect of the day, please? Let us pray. O Lord, mercifully hear our prayers, and having set us free from the bonds of our sins, deliver us from every evil. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Proclaiming the One. We'll be back again next week, the first Sunday in Lent. Please join us for worship, 8 and 1030, 3825 Wildbriar Lane in Lincoln, Nebraska. And on Wednesday, March 6, Ash Wednesday, 4 and 6 p.m. with a fellowship meal in between. May God richly bless you. In Jesus Christ our Lord.